Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning. Something's weird. Everyone's done talking. I don't know what to do for these first 30 seconds. I just assume I'm not going to be listened to. I have a whole breather period that's not been stolen from me. Um, I, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm, I'm the teaching pastor here at LBCF. If you're new, if you're watching online, um, you may, depending on how long you've been here, you may have encountered one of maybe six or seven different teachers, which is awesome. It's a huge blessing in our community to have a teaching team and to be able to uh, participate in that is one of my greatest blessings. Um, I want to start, before we get into the message today, though, uh, we have a visitor, a special guest who's, who's come a couple times, and she is, uh, she's, she's sort of watching what's happening here at, at our church, but because they are doing a study of churches and how they've adjusted um, since 2020, and uh, there is and I'm so encouraged to be able to be a part of that study. And you guys have been a part of that study without even knowing it, which is awesome. But um, now you are being looped in and you're going to be in the know. And your feedback for this is huge. And one of the big blessings also is that we get to see all of the data that comes back from this. And how we can better represent Christ in our communities um, and how we can actually learn from what has happened and what is happening. And so I want to bring up Heba Farag, and she's going to explain a little bit more. If I could get him. Thank you, Pastor, for that very warm introduction. Are you sure you're not a researcher? That was an excellent introduction. Hi, everyone. My name is Hiba Farag. I am the Assistant Director of Research at the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture. And I am here because of the generosity of your leadership team in agreeing to participate in this national study. It is a national study exploring the effects of the pandemic on Christian congregations. It's being led by Hartford Seminary. There are about eight other cities participating, and our center is studying about eight to 12 congregations here in Long Beach, including Long Beach Christian Fellowship. So I have to thank you all for the generosity of allowing us to explore what your congregation is doing here in the city and how the last two to three years have impacted you. Our first phase of the study involved me talking to leadership, observing some of your worship service, and this next phase, we are inviting the voices of the congregation into the study. There are two ways for you to engage if you would like to. It's completely voluntary. It's also completely confidential. One is a survey. The survey will take about 10 minutes. There is a information sheet at the front of the congregation alongside all the other little papers in the front, and you can scan it to take the survey. I believe you will also receive an email with a link. All your um, answers, again, will remain completely confidential. The second way to participate is to participate in a focus group. That's a little bit more intensive. It'll take place on Zoom. It's about 60 minutes of a conversation, very informal. That information will come into a central data post, and all of that aggregate data from all of the national um, studies that are occurring will come back at the end of the study to the congregation to help inform you know, how you plan your programming moving forward. So if you have any questions, please come see me after the service. And otherwise, I thank you very much for offering your voices to the national study. 
Thank you. Thank you, Heva. This is awesome. Yeah, I actually think we are very blessed to be a part of that. Um, and I would really encourage you that um, it is such a low point of entry to go fill out one of those surveys, but your experience and your voice will, will help not just our church, but like you heard, this is what's happening, where, how the Spirit is moving in the church in our country and how we have responded in ways that are helpful or maybe um, that haven't been helpful and how can we learn to better do this thing? How can we better move forward as a church? And so I'd really encourage you, I'd love to see 100% of you participate. Obviously that won't happen, but I'll settle for all but one of you. And so if, if you feel like you're that one that's exempt, come talk to me afterwards and we can hash that out. So if you have your Bibles today, uh, we are starting a new series for the next few weeks where I just wanted to open it up to all of the teachers on our teaching team and say, what is the Spirit speaking to you now? What are you passionate about? Maybe what has been your passion for a long time? And very often when you are a teacher, um, the things that you're passionate about, you sort of have to, um, you have to be cautious of trying to bend a text to make it say what you want it to say because you're passionate about something that week and you want to make sure that I, I have a microphone, you're all sitting there, I'm up here, I have a captive audience, I have half an hour to say whatever I want, and if I'm passionate about something, um, I know that in order to be faithful to the text, very often I have to kind of hold that close and I have to allow that to come out in other places in ways that it's appropriate so that we don't bend the text to have it say something that it's not actually saying. But I wanted to sort of like break that ceiling off for our teaching team and say, speak about the thing you're passionate about. Share with us your heart. Let the people in our church know who you are and what actually lights your heart on fire. And so I'm really excited to hear what those passion points are from our teaching team. I know a couple of them, and I think that they're really going to bless us. And today, um, I'm going to be talking about Romans 14. So if you have your Bibles, I, there's going to be a very large chunk of text that I'm going to read. And out of, um, out of preserving my own energy to be up here to speak, I did not type them out and put them on the slide. So you're not going to have them on the slide. So pull out your phone, have a Bible open, follow along with me. Um, because this is something that I've been paying attention to for the last couple years, and it's that I believe that this picture of, of the church, um, it's not just interesting. It's, it's, it's not just something that's curious. It is essential that we understand this, that when we talk about the church, what we have to understand that it is the body of Christ. It is the, in the same way that we talk about Jesus is God manifest in a human person, the church is Christ manifest in community. It's really that important that we understand how the shape and how we behave with each other and what we are called to do. It is not something that is tangential, and it's also not something that we are building. The church is something that exists. It is the body of Christ, and whether or not we participate with that or not is actually what we're talking about. And so I want to pull up a picture 
This is, this is all, it better connect because I spent time thinking about this, but I'm going to pull up this first picture of Iceland, and I want to describe this um, event to you. So I, I was able to go to Iceland in 2016, and I was teaching a photo workshop that was for two weeks, and we pulled up to this most famous waterfall, and it was sunny and bright, and there were people that were um, Paris ailing off the, the sides or para, uh, hang gliding and it was the sun was beaming in and there was a r- rainbow that covered it and it was just beautiful and as you can go back go back so I just described to you a picture and clearly what you're seeing on the screen is not that picture And what happens is when we start talking about church and we we know that we've had experiences and we're talking about these things which are tangible and real to us because we've felt it, we've seen it, we know that it can be true, but the picture that people see is different. That's very disorienting. It's very troubling because some people who haven't experienced it don't know that it can be possible. So let's go to the next picture because I experienced two different things happening at this exact same. That was the action, that was the picture of what happened on the first week that I went and it was it was amazing but the look of this exact same place was night and day a week later and it was rainy and there was a tour bus full of people that walked through our campsite because they thought that we were just props for this waterfall, and so they were unzipping our tents and, like, getting in. I was like, we're not part of the attraction. Um, so very interesting trip, but what I want to point out is that as we are talking about the picture of the church, what we have to, to reckon with is that a lot of the experiences that we have when people come into church and the way that we talk about it are very different. And it throws people off because some people haven't experienced the waterfall being bright like that. And so you talk about it as though it's it's real and possible, but the only picture people have ever seen is the other. That's the only thing people have had. And they can't even imagine it. And so what I hope we would do today is that as we talk through Romans 14, is we would allow our imaginations to go to this place for just a moment, put on pause the act that many of us have not ever felt church feel like what we're about to talk about. And the risk is that if we misunderstand what the church, the shape of the church and the calling of the church, um, the risk of misunderstanding is that it will set us on a course of constant disappointment. It'll set us on a course where we are constantly tribally separated. Our experience of church will very often be shallow or bland, moralistic teaching, and that's it. And ultimately, we will be misrepresenting Christ to the world because this is the body of Christ. It is meant to reflect the person of Christ. So I'm going to read through, and you can follow along in Romans chapter 14. Um, I'm going to start uh, because the, the divisions are, um, 
are arbitrary, but at the same, so I want to start a verse prior, and we're going to read chapter 14 in its entirety, and I'm going to ask you as I read through it this first time, just sort of become aware of what's coming up for you, what grabs your attention. This is starting in uh, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then we get into chapter 14. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in Love, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whatever but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Chapter 
15. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please his, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself as it is written. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And I'm, I'm going to pause there and I will get into some of the other parts, but I want to really make sure that when we are talking about this picture of, of the church, it is essential that we understand a few pieces of what is happening here because this is the climax of this letter to the, these Roman, this network of Roman house churches. This is the climax. It's all been building up to this moment where Paul is painting the picture of what we are meant to do with the reality that there are some things that seem so irreconcilably different that we can't imagine being in community with each other. Now, it's, it's easy for us to translate this and see this as a, um, a uh, I mean, we've, we've used this language in our g- community, and, and you may have heard it elsewhere too, but a, a disputable matter. And, and, and we've talked about that a lot because there is a biblical reference for things that are, that are disputable. And in this passage, Paul is addressing two crowds of people, the strong and the weak. The strong would have been the audience that says it's okay to eat anything, that our diet is no longer restricted by this code that says you can only eat and not eat certain things. And they understood that this new call of Jesus was actually opening up freedom to be able to, to eat all of, all of these things, that these things are not unclean anymore, and that there's a freedom in participating in that, that that was a whole group, the strong. And the weak were those who said, I can't get my conscience to go there. I can't hold my faith in that way. I've been, I've been raised up in believing and understanding faith and faithfulness and worship and diet as all of these methods by which I show God that I love him and I care about him and I want to be distinct in all of these pieces, that there are people who, who, who could not get there. And Paul calls that crowd the weak. And what he is doing here, and Paul, at the start of chapter 15, which is why I always want to make sure to include this in chapter 14, is because Paul actually says, we who are strong, Paul counts himself among the strong. Paul knows, and Paul is very aware and accustomed to what it looks like to be rigid about the methods by which people practice faith. He was, he was the Bible scholar of Bible scholars. He was a zealot. He was intense. He was, he was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting them prior to his conversion until Christ stopped him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So he has this beautiful experience where all of a sudden he sees that the people who he's passing judgment on, Christ is 
is saying when you attack those people, you're not just attacking these people off to the side, you're actually persecuting me because this idea that I have in the church that I would bring those people to me, that I would open up a table, that's me. That's my body manifest in this community. Why do you persecute me? And then Paul, so Paul knows a thing thing or two about what it looks like to be rigid in how you hold what you believe. And so he says, I count myself among the strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And what I want to make sure that we understand what Paul did not do here and what we are so tempted to do is Paul did not spend this chapter trying to convince the weak to be the strong. Because he could have laid out a beautiful argument because he had one that lived in him. He could have spent this whole time trying to coerce the weak to take on this, this new thing, this new way, this new freedom that he had. Instead, I think that Paul knew that if what we do is we treat the community of Christ, this embodiment of Christ in community, as something that has to pass through uniform belief before we enjoy it, we'll never get there. We'll never be able to embody what the church was meant to be if we treat it as a byproduct of uniform belief. That if it stands on the other side of that, we have it upside down. He says that actually you will probably better work out the right way to believe by entering first into community, by entering first into the table, by answering an invitation that says, come. And I asked Lila, I said, will you please sing All Who Are Thirsty? So that was my kind of throwback of of like, I really love that song because there are passages and passages on top of passages that talk about, come all who are thirsty. Let all come to me who are weary. And the invitation is so broad and so wide and so open. But many times what people experience is that dull waterfall. What some people experience so often is is this, this thing that treats the community, this connected place where all of a sudden you're free to come in and not have to prove or earn or convince anybody that you belong here, that all of a sudden we say that that experience is true, but it's on the other side of being able to answer at least 80% of these questions right, that I'm going to pass you a test, and as long as you mark 80% of these questions right, then okay, the community is here for you, and we make people pass a test. And you might not, and this may just come across as like judgment that you don't receive because you are welcoming everybody. And I'd say, fantastic. Keep doing that. Keep doing that piece that that welcomes in. That here, Paul says, rather than waiting until we all believe the same thing. He's saying, come to this table. And it's at the table in the relationship that we will have with each other that we will sort out what it looks like best to represent Christ in the world. Because he says that this is the glory of God. 
It is the glory of God to be able to draw in people that are all over the map and work out what it looks like best to represent Christ in the world from that place because everything else, every other means by which we are drawn to each other based on what we all agree on, what we all like, there are enough options out there to be able to get that. That the church, the actual thing that will distinctly define us now is that we are not going to play by those rules and that we are actually held together. It's what we've talked about here over and over again is that we really have to be willing to do that to embody the reality that all things hold together in Christ. Until we actually are willing to say, come and sit with me. Before you answer any questions, come sit. Before you prove anything, before you answer any questions, before you pass a test, you are welcome at the table. And the reality is that when we, because what starts to rise up in the week in this conversation, and I would probably consider myself to be among the weak, if I'm just going to be honest. Like, there are things in me that rise up in this that are hard to hold. And as as I see Paul talking here, is that there's not a challenge more for one than the other. The weak have to, have to be willing to show up to the table and withhold judgment. Because that's the temptation. is to say, well, what about holiness? What about righteousness? What about discipleship? What about right and wrong? What about sin? Are we even going to be able to talk about that anymore? Like, are we throwing it out the window? The weak have to be willing to say, I'm going to show up to the table and withhold judgment. Because I think those are all really good questions. But I think that what Paul does here is that it actually highlights that, um, that this picture of the church, this picture of what God's people look like in the text, it's, it's called a banquet 15 times in a courtroom once. So when we look at what the picture of the churches, it's a banquet where you are invited in. And it's not that everything all of this is sudden is okay and it's all cool and whatever. It's saying that when you get to this place, it's in that loving community that people are drawn towards Christ and it's in a relationship with Christ that people are transformed. It's not in any of my teaching. It's not in worship it's that when we draw in closer to Christ, he is the only one that will be able to affect that heart place in you that needs to be healed as it is. So when we draw people in, what we are actually trying to do is, is do as much as we can to embody who Christ is so that when people come in, they can go to him and be transformed and be made whole and that sin does matter. Holiness, righteousness matters. But the picture is always that the greatest sinner in the room is not someone else, it's you. It's my sin that needs to be on, on display to be transformed, always. That when I want to talk seriously about sin, if I'm starting with anyone else except for me, I have it wrong. I have it upside down and backwards. I'm the greatest sinner in the room, and I need to be transformed. And the other is always somebody that you reach out for 
and you extend hospitality and generosity and love and patience and grace, that those are the things that we want to withhold both for ourselves and the people that think the most like us. And Scripture is constantly telling you, reverse it. Get the log out of your own eye because you can't even help anyone else until you do that first. And so it's constantly saying, let yourself deal with your sin and your broken place. Put yourself in Christ's hands and do everything you can to, to give that same offer to everyone else. And come to the table. And I'm basically plagiarizing this entire message by a, um, a really great speaker, theologian Tim Gombus. And so if you want a really good um, ex- expository look at, at this passage, he has a podcast that I would encourage you to go listen to, and he unpacks a lot of this there. But we get to set some things down, and we get to pick some things up. I want to talk about that. We get to set down the individualistic imaginations that treat community as the byproduct of agreement. We get to set down our justified judgments, our justified contempt, our justified quarrels. And I'm making sure that I'm, that I'm including that word justified because these are not people that are being asked to believe anything else. These are not people who are being told, okay, sort out this belief you have before you come to the table. It's saying, no, bring it. Bring it here. Bring all of the ways that we, that we consider impossible. But the real thing that will withhold you from showing up to the invitation to the table is your judgment if you are the weak or your contempt if you are the strong. The weak judge and the strong have contempt. They can't, it exhausts them. It's, it's frustrating when, when you have people who don't see that this is an invitation to freedom. Come on, just believe the way that we believe. It's great. So there's this contempt that starts to build that, that the strong will have to hold off and that we make room. And it says, be convinced in your own mind. There's this part in here that I that I know as I, even as I read it and even as I speak it, that there have been people whose voices have been quieted, that people have been told that we don't want to hear your opinion, that people have been made to feel like actually your, your view doesn't matter, that we've grown past it or it's too extreme. And so keep quiet. And I don't want to continue to, to move in those places, but there is a sense in which the community is called to, to be convinced in your own mind. You can absolutely hold these things with conviction, and you can walk or believing strongly, knowing that ultimately what will happen is you will have to give an account for what you, how you hold your belief in community. You won't give an answer for anybody else. You will give an answer for yourself. And so you can hold that, and it's, there's a way in which we posture ourselves that no matter what we believe, that if we use that as a justif- justification to judge or to keep anyone else out, that that's the place of danger. 
When, all, when you start to feel like, because I believe things rightly, I get to treat this other group of people wrongly, sirens should go off in your head. We should be very cautious when we say, because I believe rightly, I get to judge. I get to have contempt. This is going right after that. And it says, actually, when you enter community with love and hospitality and you focus your inward pointing arrows on your own sin and you extend that part that that wants to withhold grace and hospitality for the people that think like me, Scripture tells us, invite people to the table that don't think like you. Invite people to the table, not only that don't think like you, but invite people that can offer you nothing in return. Invite the people who have nothing that will not advance you in any way. Go have coffee with a person that really challenges you and don't post about it. Like, Go be with people and allow it to just be a place of beautiful transformation for you where all of a sudden it won't add anything to you by posting about how brave and hospitable you were. Really. Like, if we don't do that, we aren't getting anywhere. And I have had coffee the last couple weeks with some people who I think that on paper we would probably really think that we were a lot alike. And we both admitted by the end of it, like, we don't know each other that well. And the truth is, I don't know a lot of you that well. And you guys probably don't know me that well either. And that's not a judgment, that's just a challenge, that's a call. To say it's, it's going to be so easy to slip away from this beautiful picture. It's going to be so easy to slip away into judgment or contempt as long as we continue not knowing each other. It's going to be so easy. And I think that we have a beautiful opportunity because when we lay down our judgments, our contempts, our, ult- our ult- ultimatums, our in insistence on making our opinions heard, our belief that we're the host, which you're not. None of us are the hosts. We are table guests who need to have better table manners with each other. That is a straight ripoff of Tim Gombas, by the way. I I hear in my head, like, copyright infringement. Um, So, um, but what we get to pick up is a freedom from all of that stuff, a freedom that stresses us out, a freedom that, that, um, that, it's, that we have to hold things with this tight, white-knuckle grip, and we get to pick up a reorientation towards our own sin where we actually then get to extend our energy outwards to welcome and to provide freedom for others to liberate others from this belief that exists everywhere else in a world that they're not, wanted, they're not wanted or they only are after they pass a test. And then we have to also understand that this is calling us not to just to, to each his own. Because if we end in that place, we haven't understood what's happening here either. 
This is not a, okay, everybody do your own thing, and I'm, I have no ability to say anything on it. It says, actually, what you'll do is that you'll find that you've got so much freedom, and you'll have to, to really lay those freedoms down for each other. You have freedoms. I do, too. We can believe in a variety of, it can be a mosaic, and it can be beautiful, and you can believe strongly about what you think, and I can, can believe strongly, we can come to the table. And I was thinking about this text as I was driving here, and I was thinking about my parents. And um, I grew up in a very different kind of world than Long Beach. <laughs> and um, I, whenever I'm at home, um, I have an opportunity to really try to sort out all of these things that I know my parents and I strongly don't agree on a lot of stuff. Or I could sit and share a meal and we could laugh knowing that that exists. And, and if it comes up, we can be honest, but I would rather share beauty in that place because we have a lot of opportunities in lots of places where we don't think the exact same thing, but we are, we are being called into this picture, which, ac- which is actually the picture of eternity. Rev- Revelation 19 says that the, the ultimate picture of what this looks like is a diverse and shared table. When it talks about the wedding feast, that that's what it looks like, that we're coming to the table, making room for each other. Take your sin, your own sin seriously and extend hospitality towards others. And it's in that place that we will actually sort out what it means to believe rightly. And we can get into this stuff, but it has to be through relationship with each other and in community that we will sort this out. Um, and I'm going to, I insist that I get to my picture of my lawn because I, I believe so strongly in my grass care that I have to get to what I was, this all will make sense. And if it doesn't, just allow me some room to be really into my lawn. Um, I have, I have not kept up with my lawn care as much as I would like to in the last year. And I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to get back at it. And I saw patches of dead happening all, all over the place. And I was like, okay. And I watched enough YouTube clips to sort of sort out, like, what's happening here? How, how can I test for, like, is this a watering issue? Is this a weeds issue? And, I was, and as I was trying to sort all of, all, of, all of this out, what was coming up for me is the amount of pain that I know from, from the experience of people that are in this room right now that I'm catching eyes with right now. And the amount of places where people have experienced a lack of health or struggle or death. And, I was, and as I was looking at it, I was like, oh, there's a lot of different ways that this plays out. I saw a frisbee that hadn't been moved until whenever, and I moved it, and the picture of the dead grass right in that spot was, like, perfect. And I was like, oh, some people, there is a very defined something that has been blocking, that has been hindering them from experiencing this beauty in community, from the life and the nourishment getting to, I mean, when you move that thing, the shape of, of, 
of that is the exact same. Even if all of the grass that is around it, there's, there have been people who have had specific things blocking. Let's go to the next one. And then I saw that there have been, that there are patches where there have been weeds, undealt with stuff that have been growing underneath that have been blocking for a long time. And then there's this huge patch where the heat hits that wall, that brick wall, and it reflects so much heat into this one place. And I was like, and then there are people in our community who have experienced so much stress that what often will happen and what they tell you is that when your lawn is stressed, don't try and cut anything. Don't try and correct anything. Like, what it needs is rest. And there are some people here who the, the, the death that they felt is just that it's been an exhausting couple of years. And we've, we've tried to cut, we've, we've tried to create a one-size-fits-all approach to pain, and that's just not how it is, that there are some people who need some things removed so that the light can hit them, and then some other people just need to honestly just rest and breathe because they have, because it's been too dry or too hot or there hasn't been enough water and they just need to survive this kind of tough place that they're in and we need to be able to come alongside and we will only do that once we learn where the pain is at in each other's lives and once again pointing us to get to know each other and ask each other one question that i love is just starting off and saying where is your pain some people it's in their bodies they really have a concern there's there's like a medical concern that things happening when you know that it's helpful because that impacts everything might be in their mind their family their heart all of these things but it's not one size fits all and until we know each other we won't approach it rightly and then let's go to the next picture because i think the real tragedy is that if you find just the right angle to take a picture you won't see any of it If I found just the right angle where all of a sudden you can't see the dead patches and you can't see and I find just the right angle, as long as I look at my lawn just like this and I don't let my eyes wander here to the dead patches or around the corner to places I don't see, as long as I keep this picture in front of my face, it looks great. It looks perfect. But as long as we, once we start to know each other, we won't be able to ignore it. We'll see that just around that corner, you guys all saw giant dead patch, and it looks ugly and horrible. As long as I hold this picture up, everything looks great. And I think we're being called, Romans 14 is calling us to set these pictures down. Come to the table, everybody. Let's go to that last slide where it has the fill in the blanks. We can all fill in the blank of like a good neighbor. Okay. Uh, can't we all just get along? Okay. We can all fill in those blanks. We have it in our head. I want these to be blanks that we can just as easily fill in. Come, all who are thirsty, you who have crowned all with glory and honor, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
That's the invitation. That's the shape of this table of which none of us are the host. We get to come to the table. Be grateful. I'm taking too much time now. Um, so I want to be able to kind of get more into this text in a future teaching time, but for today, I think that that'll do it, and I want to bring up those who are serving communion, because one of the places that we actually get to participate with what it looks like to come to the table is the communion table. This is no small act. When we all share the communion table, this is a, this is a embodied experience of what it looks like to welcome everybody that comes to this table gets to eat, gets to drink. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Ask that um, any part of it that was from you would root deeply, that we would hold on to it, that we would become curious about it. Any part that was challenging, that we would not push it off. Lord, that we would actually get to know each other because it's in that that we will be transformed, because it's in that that we can set down our temptations to judge or have, have contempt for each other. Thank you for this table. Thank you for this building. Would your spirit be um, powerful here? In your name.